Hey everybody, I'm Alec, and this is Scandal 101. Hello, how is everyone doing? I am currently... When I'm recording this, I'm living in a hotel right now because my apartment has to be fumigated because it has termites, which is super exciting and super yummy. Um, So I get to live at a hotel for a few days, which is super exciting. But other than that, I don't really think there is a lot going on. This is going to be a, excuse me, this is going to be a two-part episode. I've seen a lot of things on Twitter, on Facebook, on TikTok about these, about this topic, lots of different, uh, just people being mad. And I didn't really know a lot about it. One of my friends is a history major and she kind of informed me about some things as well. So I decided to look into it and who boy, there is a lot of interesting things about this case. Um, I learned so much. So I hope you find this interesting, and this is the case of the British Museum and it being full of stolen artifacts. Like I said, this is going to be a two-part episode, so in this first episode I'm going to be going over a brief history of the museum, I'm going to be talking about a little bit about British colonialism, but you didn't know you'd be getting a history lesson, even though it's not a central focus of this episode. It is important to understand that background before we get into the actual artifacts and how they got into the museum. And then in this episode we are also going to talk about the controversy about the artifacts and the museum and then the laws that are currently in place. And then next part, which will come out on Monday, we are actually going to look into a couple of the artifacts that have a very controversial, I guess we should say, ownership status or where they should be at. So the actual artifacts are going to be on Monday and we're going to do a deep dive into those and that is also super interesting. But this episode is going to be a lot of background and a lot of things that when I found, I was like, oh, I wonder if this is going to be boring because it's just a lot of like, it's not the actual artifacts, but I found a lot of things that are pretty frustrating. So we are just going to jump right in. So like I said first, a brief history of the museum. In 1753, an act of parliament created the museum, and it was to be opened by 1759. It was to be the world's first free national public museum, open to, quote, all studious and curious persons, end quote. And the majority of my information from this first section about the museum's history comes from a history.com article, and as always, you can find all of my sources in the show notes. So the museum was opened in 1759 and like I said the act of parliament uh, created it in 1753 so there's this guy I believe his name is Hans Sloan is how you pronounce it he lived from 1660 until 1753 and he had collected over 80,000 quote natural and artificial rarities end quote so I don't know what kind of house this guy was living in in the 16 and 1700s because 80,000 things today, I, it, 
that is so many things and it i can't imagine how much space that would take up but he had eighty thousand things at least which is kind of cool i guess but he it broke down to over forty thousand books and manuscripts as well as over thirty-two thousand coins and medals and then just other things as well but eighty thousand things like Hans, you were really doing the thing. You were collecting things. So you know what? Good on you. I also wonder if he had bugs. I wonder if that was a thing. I don't know. Anyway, um, so at first, even though the museum was to be open to, quote, all studious and curious persons, end quote, it was pretty hard to get a ticket unless you knew someone who worked for the museum, aka you had to kind of be rich to get into the museum. Generally, it, you had to be connected to someone who was on the board of trustees or a curator at the museum. So common people, such as myself, wouldn't have been able to really gain entry into the museum um, in its beginning years. And then in the 1830s, tickets were opened up, hours were extended, and it really did become what it was supposed to be, which was open to the public and free. Today, admission to the museum is free, and the museum on their website states that it welcomes more than 6 million visitors per year. That's probably less with COVID, but 6 million people a year is awesome. Um, the museum now has more than 8 million artifacts that cover over 2 million years of human history. And here's one quote from their website. Quote, some of these objects were taken or purchased in regions then under British colonial rule before they were purchased, donated or bequeathed to the museum, while others were acquired through excavations, sales, or other bequests by collectors, end quote which bequeathed and bequests are fancy words out of my vocabulary but very fancy one thing I want to focus on in that quote is taken or purchased then under British colonial rule that's important because that leads into a lot of the controversy about these artifacts so now you understand a little bit of background on the museum so now we're going to talk a little bit about british colonialism whoa colonialism because as in that quote from the museum's website it it is pretty important so to start us off we are going to go just a couple years back to 1588 um, after the feat of the spanish armada uh yeah spanish armada in England established their superiority of ships and sailors, and a lot of this information is coming from the Encyclopedia Britannica. I think all my information for this section comes from there. Again, it's linked in the show notes. So then in 1600, Elizabeth I granted a charter for the East India Company, and after this, they began establishing trading posts in India. So they're already expanding their reach across the globe. In 1603, plans started being made to colonize North America, and in 1607, the first English settlement is founded in Jamestown Colony, Virginia, which obviously the English were not the first people in, the, in North America. The Native Americans were here, but that was the first English colony. Um, yeah, okay. In 1651, the Great Navigation Act is passed. This made it so that all trade is closed between Britain and its colonies. So essentially, like, if you were a colony of Britain, you had to trade with Britain and no one else. So obviously, that's going to only increase the British Empire's uh, power. In 1661... 
the first permanent settlement on the continent of Africa is founded and it becomes a key spot in the transatlantic slave trade, which garbage, trash, horrible. Yeah. But as you can see, they're in Africa, they're in India, they're in North America at this point, and they're part of the slave trade, which unfortunately was a very valuable trade at this time. So their reach is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. They kept expanding. In 1759, the British capture uh, Quebec during the French and Indian War, and this basically booted France from France's power from North America, excuse me. In 1840, New Zealand becomes British, and a lot of colonization follows, and British control expands to many of the islands in the Pacific Ocean, so now they're like almost all over the entire world. Over a period of two years, India becomes a British colony um, from seven, or sorry, 1857 to 1859. And just to be clear, I might have misspoke earlier. So they established the East India Company and they set up trading posts in India. But now officially, India is now a British colony in 1857. From 1884 to 1885, European countries met to divide up ownership of Africa which like there are, what <laughs> there are people there i i don't think you can just like i don't know i mean colonization the mindset that i have today is obviously not the same mindset people had back then but they were just gonna they just like went to like a board meeting and were like hey germany hey italy or i don't know what countries existed back then but like hey countries um, how do you want to split up this continent with a bunch of people uh, on it so we can own it and like use it for our resources? Like I, I'm going to school. I haven't been into a boardroom meeting, but from my understanding, most boardroom meetings don't uh, don't involve dividing up a continent. But who knows? That was way back then. Um, but anyways, Britain gets most of the land, which goes, which stretched in Africa from South Africa all the way up to Egypt. So they have a ton of land in Africa. Um, in the 1900s, Britain was known as an empire on which the sun never set because of their far-reaching colonization and control of power. Which I mean, that just boggles my mind. Like I, th I recently just drove halfway across the United States. And that was an, a massive amount of just land to drive across. And that's half of the middle of North America. I'm just trying to wrap my brain around wherever the British controlled, the sun never set. Like that, that blows my mind. Um, but yeah, so the early 1900s, it seems like Britain was kind of at their peak. Um, but then... They started losing countries, um, countries started fighting, whoa, countries started fighting for their independence from Great Britain, and this was, I, I thought this was pretty interesting. The last significant separation from Great Britain took place in 1997 when Hong Kong was returned to Chinese sovereignty. I had no idea Hong Kong was a British colony, but until 1997 they were. Okay, so that is your history lesson for the day. It, the point of that was to show you, one, a timeline of British colonialism, and two, just how far-reaching it was, because the artifacts we are going to talk about come from all different places of the world. And in the second part, there is a lot of debate over who should own the artifacts, and also at the back half of this episode. 
So it's important you understand how significant their reach was and why it's so controversial, which we're just about to get into. So as, as was stated earlier, and it's stated on the museum's website, some of the artifacts were, quote, taken or purchased in regions then under British colonial rule before they were purchased, donated, or bequeathed to the museum, end quote. Again, there's that word, bequeathed. We need to understand how the museum operates and rules on these matters before we dive into the specific artifacts, which will be the next episode. I found this great piece by David Allen Green. It was published in May of this year, 2021, and it talks a lot about the laws uh, that the British Museum actually operates with and then the ideas surrounding the British Museum. So a good chunk of these uh, sources or a good chunk of this information comes from the Green article and I will let you know when I switch to a different source. So a statement came in 2004 from the museum's then director. His name was Neil McGregor, and it said in part the following, quote, to ensure that the collection would be held for the benefit of citizens and not the purposes of the crown, Parliament hit upon a solution of extraordinary ingenuity and brilliance, end quote. Quote, trustee ownership confers duties rather than rights. Trustees must derive no benefit for themselves, but hold the collection exclusively for the advantage of the beneficiaries, end quote. Quote, the collection cannot be sold off, end quote. So basically, it's a long statement, and again, that was just bits and pieces of it, but it's make, it's, the statement is basically saying that once a piece is in the collection, it really can't leave the collection, and it's safeguarded for the benefit of all, which, like, I'm down for. Obviously, history is an important thing to preserve. You need to know where you've been so you know where to go and where not to go. It's important to understand how we got to where we are. I'm all for preserving history, but what we're going to get into is a legal term, which is uh, Latin, and hold on, let me look up how to pronounce it. Okay, I just looked it up. It is nemo dat quat non habet. Um, I did not take Latin. I took Spanish in high school, so that is way out of my ball league. Whoa way out of my game. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Okay. Um, but it essentially translates to like, no one gives what they do not have. So for example, if I steal something, and then I sell it to you, you don't own it. The person I stole it from still owns it. If the owner finds out you have it, and if it was taken to court, and the owner could prove that they had o had ownership, such as like a receipt, a title, etc., it would go back to the owner because even though you bought it from me, I stole it, so I never really owned it, therefore you never really owned it. So in terms of the museum, how does this principle apply to artifacts that may have come to the museum that were stolen under British colonial rule? Under this principle, wouldn't the museum not really own it? Like, if they stole it from someone and it's in the museum, shouldn't the people who it was stolen from have it back? Under this legal principle, that would be the line of thinking. Okay, so in 1963, there's this law 
called the British Museum Act 1963, and specifically under Section 5, it talks about this issue. As it seems from the original statement that we talked about earlier from the former director, once an item is in the museum, it really can't leave unless it falls under what is specified in Section 5. Some of the things that fall under this section, which would allow an artifact to leave, is if it was a duplicate, if it was made after 1950 and it was mainly printed material that can be copied, or, quote, in the opinion of the trustees, the object is unfit to be retained into the collection, end quote, or it's useless because of damage. Those uh, last four bullet points come from a statute law database um, talk that just has the law. But basically, this kind of reinforces legally why it is so hard for items to be let out of the collection um, once they're in on a permanent basis. And this law doesn't really address how the items get into the collection. Like, once they're in, if it doesn't meet that criteria, it really can't be let out. Um, so that's that makes it, I don't want to say impossible, but there's a very narrow category for which an item has to fit in for it to be able to go. And that can be really frustrating for a lot of things um, which we are going to talk about now because something happened in 2005 which uh, kind of made a lot of people question this principle. There was a 2005 court case called the Attorney General versus the British Museum. So the museum had bought four paintings after World War II. I think it was like 1946 or 1947 or something. I I had a hard time tracking down the original date when this purchase happened, but the paintings that the museum bought were looted by Nazis from the original owners. I don't know if the museum knew that at the time, but that was what happened. So it brings up that legal precedent or legal question, which I'm not going to try to pronounce. You don't own something that you never really had. So the question was, in this court case, do the trustees of the art museum, who are the people who basically run the museum, have the power to give back the painting despite the 1963 law that is still in place? So even if the trustees wanted to give back the, the paintings, according to that 1963 law, they couldn't, no matter how much they wanted to, because they would technically be breaking the law, which... It seems like they're putting an unnecessary amount of stress or burden onto the trustees of the museum, or they're making it seem like the trustees can't be the bad guys. I don't really know, but it, based on the way the article was written, it seemed like there was a desire to give the uh, paintings back, but like I said, they would be breaking the law if they did. So the question, are they allowed to give it back? Basically, no, they're not allowed to give it back. With um, that legal principle, even though, you know, you don't own something you never really had, that has less power than the written law in 1963. So legally, the museum could not give the paintings back, even though the paintings were originally stolen from the owners by the Nazis. The judge in the case did say that if there was not a title passed down to the museum, technically it wouldn't be a part of the museum collection, but at the point that this case was brought up, it was over 60 years past when the museum had acquired ownership to 
or of the paintings and the time to dispute a title was way past and that's going to kind of foreshadow into the second episode because if 60 years is too late to debate the passing of a title thousands and even millions of years is way past that time um which is the next episode this case ruled that they were a part of the collection and they could legally not be given back even though the paintings could not be given back there was a recommendation that the relatives of the original owners of the painting receive something called an ex gratia payment payment i don't know why i can't speak today essentially they weren't given the paintings back but they did receive money uh, for the paintings that was at the approximate value of what the paintings would have gone for at auction if they were sold. It, you know, it's great that the museum were able to give the relatives of the original owners payments, but it sucks that legally the museum couldn't give back the paintings because of that law. And in my, like, in my opinion, why can't you just change the law? Like, I know that there's a whole legal procedure of how a bill gets introduced, and it's obviously different than the United States, but it goes through Parliament and all of these things. But, like, if there's an outcry for this law to be changed, like, why can't it just be changed? Like, in my mind, I know everyone's like, just change the law. And, like, it's obviously a hard thing to get a law passed or to change a law, but this was a pretty public case of maybe why this law shouldn't be in place anymore. But now, since the 2005 case, there is something called the Holocaust Return of Cultural Objects Act, which passed in 2009, and it does say that items looted by the Nazis can be returned even if they are a part of the collection, which is great because obviously the Nazis did so many horrible, terrible things. They stole from people, plus they killed over 6 million people. Don't want to overlook that fact, but they destroyed people's lives in so many ways, including massacring, killing, but also just stealing and like pillaging people. So if if artifacts were stolen and are now in the museum, if they can be given back to the owners or relatives of the owners, like that's an important step forward. So it was good that that law was passed in 2009, but what about for other artifacts that were stolen? Like we said earlier, there are items in the museum that were taken or purchased under British colonial rule. Great, okay. So if the British army or whatever force of the British came into a country, colonized it, pillaged villages and pillaged palaces and stole artifacts, wouldn't it, how is that different than the Nazis stealing artifacts just the stealing artifacts part i i'm not trying to compare the country of britain to the nazis by any means but if we're looking at the fact of if someone if a force of a country comes in steals artifacts and then takes them and they should be returned if we're doing that for the nazi artifacts that are in the museum why can't other artifacts that are in the museum that were stolen by British forces be returned to the countries that they were stolen from. If there is a way in that country, like if there's the proper people, the proper facilities, the proper museums in that country to preserve those artifacts, 
because like I said, preserving history is important. I I am all for museums. Honestly, like go to your local county history museum. I went to the one in my college. It's pretty interesting. There's a lot of cool things there, but there's so much history that needs to be preserved. So I understand not wanting to send artifacts back if they are just going to go back and be destroyed. But if a country has a museum that can preserve the artifacts that were stolen from their country 10 years ago, 100 years ago, a thousand years ago, a million years ago, why, why can't we give those artifacts back? There's a part on the British Museum website that is titled, quote, contested items, end quote. Um, and it has some items on there, but if you go to other websites, there are a lot of items that are contested in the British Museum that don't make the list on the official British Museum website. And in 2019, a trustee resigned from the British Museum and said the following. This was part of their statement as their resignation. Quote, it, and it is talking about a French report about looted African artworks, burst open the debate over the repatriation of cultural artifacts. Museums, state officials, journalists, and public intellectuals in various countries have stepped up to the discussion. The British Museum, born and bred in the empire and colonial practice, is coming under scrutiny, and yet it hardly speaks." End quote. And that is where we are going to end part one of the British Museum being full of stolen artifacts. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found this interesting. Like I said, the specific artifacts, and I'm not going to cover every single contested artifact in the museum because that could honestly be its own podcast by itself, like a whole series. But I am going to cover three, if not four, highly contested items in terms of where they came from, why they are significant, how they ended up in the British Museum, and kind of what the status of their, I guess, claim to ownership is right now. Um, but that is going to be part two, which, like I said at the beginning, is going to come out on Monday, so you don't have to wait a full week for that. Again, I just want to thank you so much for listening. If you want to stay up with the latest, keep in touch on social media. I will be posting photos from this case and then the... Uh, Part two will be on Monday. I'll post pictures on social media. You can find us on Instagram at Scandal101Podcast, on Twitter at Scandal101Pod, Facebook page. If you search Scandal101Podcast, we should pop up. It has the same image as the album cover for this podcast. And if you want to find um, my notes and the sources that I use for this episode, you can go to our website scandal101podcast.podbean.com and again that's where you can find the sources and the show notes there's also a link tree on the website and the social media pages where you can figure out where to listen we're everywhere apple podcast spotify audible you can ask alexa to play us and she will which is pretty cool send in some scandals if you want any covered like i said part two is coming out on monday um i have the next one after this figured out which i'm super excited for but if you have suggestions send them in um the one next week is suggested from a listener so i will cover them if there's enough information to cover in an episode so please send in any suggestions you have but once again thank you so much for listening i hope you tune in on monday for part two and this has been episode nine of scandal 101